Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium podcast. This session is from the Big Screen Symposium held in Auckland on the 4th and 5th of December 2020. In this session, we hear from Australian multi-hyphenate Scott Ryan about his process creating, writing and starring in crime drama series Mr Inbetween. FX renewed the series for a third season, which was in production when this session was recorded. Scott is the sole writer and Nash Edgerton is the sole director across the seasons. Mr Inbetween is based on the 2005 feature film The Magician, which is also written by and stars Scott Ryan. This session is moderated by entertainment journalist, film critic, and broadcaster, Dominic Corrie. Kia ora everybody. My name is Dominic Corrie. Welcome to this panel at the Big Screen Symposium 2020. I'm going to introduce our special guest today. Yeah, mate. This is Scott Ryan, the creator, star, and writer of Mr. In Between. Thanks for being here, Scott. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. And hello to everybody else that's there. Um, we're going to kick things off with um, a bit of uh, VT. We've got a trailer for the se- first season and then a couple of promotional stings um, that'll just sort of set the tone, get you guys familiar with the show and the vibe of it. So should we roll that out now? Sounds good. Tell us a little bit about why you're here. My name is Ray. I'm 40. I've got a kid. Divorced. Do you think that you've got an anger problem? No. Okay. Birds flying high. You know how I feel. So if you're in jail and you disrespect somebody, sun in the sky, you can end up dead. You know how I feel. There's consequences. But out here in the real world, why don't you watch where you're going, eh? What was that? There's no consequences. And I'm feeling... Because people let them get away with it. Good. You right, old man? You enjoy hitting people? I wouldn't say I enjoy hitting people. Now she ends up with you. She must be desperate. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty big on respect. If you don't, we got a problem. So in your mind, you've done society a favour. And I'm feeling it. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, Barney's like, uh... Like a fight. Bludger. Hey. Well, uh, lazy prick. Well, a boot is like a shoe, or it's a like a trunk. You got out of the boot. What do you put in a boot? No, you can put uh, groceries. You can put a body. You can put just about anything. What's a dunny? I'm going to cut your beak off. And then I'm going to go flush it in the dunny. Oh, dunny's a toilet. 
Okay. <laughs> um, just to remind you, we're going to have an audience Q&A towards the end, so put your questions into the, the app, and we'll get to, to those a bit later. Um, now, if you guys aren't aware, uh, Scott created this character for a film that came out in 2005 called The Magician. Scott, where did this character come from? Um, I read a book uh, oh, probably 25 years ago called Contract Killer, and it was about a New York hitman, and it was a sort of real-life account of uh, his life and his what he did for a living and, uh, yeah, that was the start of it. And, um, you know, I just thought it was an interesting character and then, of course, I started reading, reading Chopper Reed's books after that and uh, sort of got me into true crime and I guess it was just just a lot of reading, a lot of research um, over a number of years and uh, I guess he's kind of like an amalgamation of a lot of those different characters that I'd read about in these in these books. And uh, The Magician was a self-funded film, is that correct? Yeah, originally. Um, I was uh, was living in a house, a rooming house, and uh, a developer bought it and they were going to tear it down or something and uh, they never did. So I ended up staying there for about six months rent-free. So basically I just used the, the rent money that I, uh, to basically fund the film. And when you were making the film back back then, did you did you sense the potential longevity of the character? Did you know that there were sort of more places you could go with it? Um, not until not until later on, you know. I mean, for me, it was just making the film was just a way to get my foot in the door, um, and that that's really all it was designed to do. And it wasn't until later that I thought to myself, "Well, I've got." Yeah, the thing with the thing with the magician and having no money is, I there were so many things that I wanted to do, um, but I couldn't. Just I didn't have the resources. I didn't have a crew. I didn't have a lot of the things you need. So um, after I, uh, you know, the magician was done and dusted, I had a bunch of ideas and I just kind of wrote them down and thought, well, you know, maybe there's. I don't know why I thought a TV show, but I just thought, yeah, maybe it's there's, there's, I might get a TV show out of some of these ideas. And uh, and then I get a call uh, from a producer saying, hey, you know, do you want to, have you thought about doing it as a TV show? And I said, well, yeah, I have actually, and that's how it all started. How long after the film came out was that? Um, the film came out in 2005, so I'd say probably... 2006, I think. So it's been, it's been quite a long road to getting the TV show up and running. Yeah, I'd say probably um, I started writing things down in about 2005. So it took about, I think, about 13 years, 12 or 13 years to, uh, to, get, it, to get it on screens. Was, was there a lot of heartache in that time? I and mean, that's quite a, quite a long development period. Does it, did it come close to happening and then not happening was, was take me through that yeah. process. Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we, we kind of, we developed it with SBS originally. It was, uh, the first thing that we did. And then, uh, I think it was after that, that 
uh, we pitched it to HBO, um, and they they were they were interested. They saw it. They watched the magician. They they, they loved that. So uh, we uh, started talking to them, and we we're going to do a pilot with them. But you know, some things happened, and uh, so that went by the wayside. And you know, then we we're still trying to get it made in Australia, but. Um, there was sort of a lot of pushback, you know. People didn't want me to, you know, star in it. Uh, some people did. Some people were fine with that. Uh, some people weren't fine with it. Um, but it's just one of those things. I mean, you know, everybody sort of goes through it. You know, you have a bunch of projects and some get up and some don't, you know. It's just the reality of the industry, I guess. Was Was that because you weren't an established name that they didn't want you to star in it or...? Well, some, I guess, I mean, I don't know. I mean, when we developed it with SBS, they had no problem with me starring in it. You know, they'd seen the film and they were certainly behind that. Um, you know, and then, you know, it was a matter there of somebody else, you know, somebody, you know, changed job roles and the person that came in didn't like the idea of the show and then... You know, that it felt, and that just, you know, that happens, you know. It's just the reality of the way it is, you know. I don't want to seem like I'm blowing smoke, but it's it's just impossible to, you know, you're a living embodiment of this character. It feels like your on-screen presence is so key to the, the tonal uh, tightrope that this that this show walks. I kind of met, could, did you ever consider doing it with someone else? And, 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 and oh, on yeah. Camera? I mean, we couldn't. We, we, we couldn't get it made for years and, uh, you know, I said to Nash, I said, mate, look, you know, just whatever. Like, if you can find somebody else, just make it, you know. I'm, I'm okay with that, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, Nash wasn't really interested in doing it with somebody else in it. Um, and, uh, you know, I never really understood that on the part of some people, you know, because, I mean, really, The Magician is, you know, an 85-minute um, audition for, for, the, for the show. So if you don't like the film and you don't like what I did, well, why are you even talking to me kind of thing, you know? Like, why are you even thinking about doing it? You know? Yeah. A- uh, you mentioned Nash. <clears throat> Excuse me. Nash Edgerton directs every episode of the show. Um, he, he was a key collaborator in developing the series. He, I understand he saw The Magician very early on and sort of helped get it out into theatres and stuff like that. Is that. Can you talk, talk about your collaboration from the early days? Well, I, I made The Magician. I had a rough cut and it was a feature at that point and I couldn't get it, you know, I couldn't get any traction with it. And uh, I cut it down to a half-hour version for the St Kilda Film Festival, and that was kind of like my last hurrah. It's like, well, if this doesn't, this doesn't, you know, get me anywhere, then that's it. You know, I'm just going to, you know, maybe do something else. So I cut it down. I put it in the St Kilda Film Festival. I went to the screening. And uh, when I came out of the screening, this guy comes up to me and says, hey, you know, I really liked your film. I love it. It's great. And I said, oh, thanks, man. And that was Nash. And uh, his brother Joel was working on something at the time. He, he was he was thinking about doing a mockumentary. And Nash said, look, you know, can I get a copy of 
of the short. And I said, look, man, I don't have one. I've only got, like, I've only got a feature version. I've only cut cut one copy to put it in the festival. And he's like, oh, okay. And he's, you know, he was thinking to himself, how's, how's this going to work as a feature? I don't know. You know, like, I like the short, but. And he said, okay. So I gave him a copy of the feature and, and he and, um, and, uh, and Joel and I think Dave Michaud, they sort of had a bit of a screening in his apartment and watched it. Um, and then he called me and said, look, you know, I want to try to help you get it out there. Um, and I said, look, if you're going to do that, at least put your name on it so at least you get something out of it if it if, it, if all goes well. Um, and he said, look, we should, I think we should re-edit it. And I said, yeah, fine, like I'm not an editor, you know. Um, I'm not a producer, I'm not a, you know, well, at that stage certainly wasn't. Um, and so, but I had to do a lot of different, I mean, originally I just wanted to be a writer, that's all I wanted to do. Um, and then I figured, well, I'm not getting anywhere as a writer, so I've got to become a director and make my own stuff. So I became a director and then I thought, well, I can't afford to pay anybody to be in this film, so I'm going to have to act in it as well. So I went from being a guy that just wanted to be a writer to being a guy that was now a director and uh, an actor and I had to be a producer and then I had to learn how to edit and I had no idea how to do that. So I had to get Final Cut and learn how to, you know, edit and do all these things. Um, so, you know, and catering, you know, I did, I did all the catering on the mission. So we had no crew. There was no first AD, second AD, third AD. I was feeding everybody. I was taking care of the props. I was uh, doing the costumes. I was shopping for costumes. Um, like every, basically everything, hiring cars and paying for it all out of my pocket. So I learned a lot about a lot of different jobs, you know, on a on a on a set. And uh, and yeah, here we are. Here we are now. But uh, yeah, Nash Nash thought, yeah, we should re-edit. And I said, yeah, sure. So. We went up to, I went up to Sydney and we recut it um, with uh, Chris Rowe. Chris Rowe did a lot of the, the, the cutting and Nash and I were involved in sort of that as well. And, um, and yeah, and then Nash knew Michelle Bennett. He got Michelle Bennett, showed Michelle Bennett. She came on board and she came on board and then, you know, uh, I think it was Hopscotch. Uh, we invited them in to have a look at it and they came in and saw it and said, right, you know, we want to distribute it theatrically. So, Just going back to that initial production, it's a, it's a great story of, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and doing what needed to be done. How nerve-wracking was it getting in front of the camera? Um, it wasn't that nerve-wracking at that point because basically... There was no crew. The guy holding the camera was a character in the in the film. There's no crew. Um, I knew all these guys, and it was heavily improvised. So it was actually quite easy to do it, um, as opposed to first season of the TV show, where I had no professional experience as an actor, and I showed up the first day on set, and there's trucks everywhere and cameras and people. There's 50, 60 people walking around, and... You know, I had a, you know, I had a bit of a moment where I had to use the, I had to use the men's room before, uh, before I went on to the first, uh, the first take. So it was pretty nerve wracking. Well, you're clearly a natural. 
Um, <laughs> did um, did Nash play a role in 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 developing the the movie into the TV show? How how was that how was that process? Um. Yeah, the process of that was uh, Nash and Nash and Michelle Bennett came on board early on as CPs, um, and then it was basically just a matter of sort of developing it from there, you know, with with SBS and uh, um, yeah, a lot of talking, a lot of uh, you know, all that kind of good stuff to get it where it is now. And uh, you mentioned that you'd, you'd pitched it to HBO and and some other American outlets. I mean, it's pretty rare for an Australian TV show to, to go onto a major American network. Um, how, how did you guys? Was it was did, did the film alert these people to your talents and and the, the potential of it? How how did you get a relationship with with these American networks? Well, we actually got in there through uh, Danny McBride's uh, production company. Uh, Roughhouse, uh, you know, uh, they knew Nash and Nash knew them and uh, he'd shown them the scripts and they loved them and so they said, you know, come on out and we'll pitch it. And originally we were going to do it in America, you know. The thought was to do it as an Aussie an Aussie hitman in the US, so, uh, which would have been quite interesting, I think. But, um, yeah, that's that's kind of how we, 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 we opened some doors over there. So uh, when, when the series eventually came about, um, w- how early on were, were FX involved? Did they, did they give you development money for it or...? Well, <clears throat> uh, I think they'd had the scripts. Um, I think uh, Nash had given them the scripts. Yeah. So what you had was FX Australia originally. And... Uh, they were pretty new, sort of new kids on the block, and they hadn't really done any Australian stuff as far as I'm aware. But because of the, all the quotas and stuff, they had to make something. They had to make something in Australia. And, uh, you know, they had the scripts and they kind of were, you know, they were sort of, they had a bit of a deadline. They had to spend a certain amount of money, in a certain, you know, by a certain time, you know, to meet meet these sort of local quotas or whatever. And, um, you know, they had the scripts and they thought, oh, yeah, these aren't bad, you know, I think, you know, we like these, let's let's make this. So it was kind of uh, by chance to some degree, I suppose, that, um, that the show even got made in the first place. And then uh, FX Australia, you know, after all was said and done, FX Australia closed down, shut shop, and... Uh, FX US really loved the show. Um, I mean, what we thought was they'd probably, you know, if they like it, they'll remake it. You know, they'll set it in America and, um, you know, my part would be played by, um, you know, somebody more handsome or whatever. And, uh, you know, but that didn't eventuate. They just said, look, we just like it. We're just going to play it as it is, you know, um, which was surprising, but very nice, you know, that they that they dug the show that much and, you know, here we are. Yeah, it feels uh, so uncompromisingly Australian. Um, it's got a wonderful tone. Were there any of the discussions, ever any discussions about, you know, catering it more to an American audience or did they just want that pure, unfettered Oka buzz? Yeah, FX never, ever said anything about Americanising the show or, you know, don't use... 
don't, you know, probably the only thing we, the only pushback we ever get from FX is, can you please cut out some of the swearing? There's great That's, swearing in this show. It's, yeah, it's some of the best swearing uh, that you'll ever hear. But we get, you know, <laughs> and practices goes through, you know, the scripts and, you know, they count every swear word and the amount of Fs and, you know, and Cs and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, we, you know, it's, it's just one of those things, like, you know, you'll do a scene sometimes depending on who you're doing it with, you know, especially when I'm with, you know, Damon Herriman, for example, if we're doing a scene, there's just Fs all over the place and, and Nash has to sort of step in and say, guys, can you just, you know, every second word is... F, C, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's just a weird, buzzy thing, I guess. You know, we, we tend to swear quite a bit, I think. Yeah, C-word, C they, they really freak out about the C-word in America, don't they? They do. We we, we, we do try to it's get harmless. it in there. I mean, you know what I mean? I think, you know, it's good to have it in there every now and then. And, uh, yeah. you know, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, I think we've had, I think last season we had more swear words than I think any other sh any other show on in history or something. Or rather, they're like, "This is crazy," and only men are swearing. But look, if I had my way, there'd be a lot more. <laughs> but yeah. I guess because FX has has slightly more restrictions than something like HBO, where they're where they're they can't quite go as full bore as as premium cable. Um, but it, it feels pretty unfitted. Um, we saw in the, the VT at the start that you explaining these kind of Aussie terms. I guess that that element of explaining the world to an American audience came in a bit more on the marketing side of it. Is that is that the case as opposed to making the show itself? Yeah, we, we, we never really... We never really thought about... Like, when we made it originally, it was just like, well, we're just making it for Australia, that's it. Know, it's for an Australian audience, so we can just use all these words. And um, that's continued, you know. We've never tried to kind of appeal to the American market or whatever because I think once you start sort of second-guessing yourself and trying to pander to people, um, it's it's not good. It's not good for the it's not good for the project. It's not good for what you're doing. You, should, you shouldn't pander. It should just be about, look, this is what it is. If you like it, that's great. If you don't, that's fine, you know. Yeah, the show definitely benefits from that. Um, it's just a, it's a crazy to me that it, that it's, as I said, so uncompromisingly Australian, but it's playing on this big mainstream American network. It kind of feels unprecedented, and it's uh, congratulations yeah. to you for that. Oh, thanks. But I think that's why it's playing, you know, because it doesn't try to appeal to a wider audience. It doesn't try to appeal to anybody outside of Australia. It is just authentically Australian, you know, and I think that's part of the... You know, part of the, uh, you know, what's the word? Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why why it's been, it, you know, it's well-liked and why it's, you know, it's all it's all over the place now. It's not just in the US, it's all over the world now. The show's just gone everywhere because, you know, it shows people, you know, a different culture in a way, you know, different attitudes, different ways of speaking and um, that you don't really get to see. You don't really get to see that when you're outside Australia and you're somewhere else, you don't really get to see Aussie shows that are really Aussie, mm. many of them. So, um, and that helps us, you know. Um, it has a very natural sense of authenticity in its portrayal of criminality. 
you mentioned that you'd read several books um, about that, but I, 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 how, how did you, did you do any other kind of research? I mean, did you speak to people in this world? Uh, how, where, where does that authenticity come from? Yeah, a little bit of it speaking to, to, to people. Um, you know, it's reading, it's speaking to people, it's mostly reading, it's mostly, uh, you know, reading just, you know, non-fiction accounts, you know, true crime accounts, you know, of, you know, that kind of world and the way it is. And, you know, if you read enough about it, you know, you, you start to understand how it all works and why it works the way it does. Um, and that's, you know, just the research, I guess, that's a really super important part of it because I didn't have a lot of experience you know, virtually zero experience with, you know, actually, you know, winning crimes. Um, I think I stole something when I was a kid and felt really bad. <laughs> That's about my only uh, some sewing thread from a, from, from a haberdashery store, I think, when I was about eight. So that's my, that's my uh, criminal career, basically. So I had to do a lot of research, talk to people, and then try to sort of understand, okay, well, how does this person's mind work? How is it that, that, that it's okay for this guy to do what he does? Um, and, yeah, that was, that was a major part of it, trying to, trying to figure that out, you know, because if I'm going to play this guy, I've got to understand, okay, I understand how he thinks and I've got to, I've got to actually like him too. If I don't like the guy, how, how am I going to how am I gonna play it? So, um yeah, I guess, I guess books mainly was the thing. Well, um, building on that, uh, more even more so than the authenticity of the criminality, there's a psychological authenticity to this character that it's not not a lot of it is articulated, but you sense that there is some real trauma in his in his background, and that he's he's dealing with that in interesting ways. Um, how did you you come about sort of setting up? a backstory for this character and how much you wanted to sort of reveal about him in the, in the first season? Um, well, some of that, you know, some of that is personal, I guess, or a lot of that is personal. You know, I've had my own sort of personal struggles and I think I think that without that, I wouldn't be able to pull it off, you know, to pull off. You know, as a writer and as an actor, I wouldn't be able to pull it off if I didn't have, you know, hadn't gone to sort of dark places and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, sorry. What was your what was the question? Well, just sort of. You, I mean, you, I think you answered it. The the thinking behind what kind of backstory you wanted to give Ray um, when we were getting to know him throughout the first season. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of it was personal accounts I'd read of of you know of criminals about what they'd been through as as, as kids and all that kind of stuff and. Um, you know, there's some of my own stuff in there. Um, you know, people I know. Um, it's sort of just an amalgamation of just a lot of a lot of different people. Some some real, some not real, some semi-real. Um, because you know, when you read these accounts, you know, you read books that are non-fiction. They're not really always. There's always some element of fiction to them. It's trying to sort of figure out what's 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 fact and, and what's not. Yeah, it's an interesting thread in the second se season when he begins talking to this journalist who's writing a book. Um, it's sort of 
one of the first times outside of perhaps the anger management classes where you, you see someone forcing Ray to kind of consider his own attitudes and 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 path. Um, was was that thread in the in this second season inspired by some of that research and some of those books you read? That was actually inspired by a conversation that I had with the journalist. Um, he was asking me a bunch of questions and I was answering them because she was trying to understand what made Ray tick. And as I was explaining it to her, um, she was sort of saying, well, that's really interesting. I kind of, that changes my, my, my opinion and my perspective on the, on the character. And then I, after the conversation, I thought, well, well, why don't I just put that in the show somewhere? You know, why don't I just have a journalist in the show and Ray can basically say what I've just said in that interview, but he can say it in the show. Yeah. Um, where the whole idea for that came from. And that's where a lot of ideas come from. It's just real life. A lot of the stuff that's in there is is stuff that's happened to me, um, you know, and I've slightly changed it, uh, you know, here and there for dramatic, you know, purposes or, you know, season two there is, I mean, there's a conversation where Ray and Gary are sitting around a campfire and they're talking about um, calamari, um, you know, and... That, that whole scene was inspired by me going round to Justin Rosniak, who plays Gary. I went round to his house one day and he I went round for dinner and he's complaining about the fact that he'd just bought a whole bunch of calamari and he'd left it in the fridge and it had gone off, you know, and he said, oh, look, I should have put it in a fresh bag. I should have washed it and then put it in the fridge and then it wouldn't have gone off. And he said, what made me feel really bad about it was, you know, I was watching this nature doco about um, octopus and, um, you know, apparent, and it was talking about the life cycle and how the female, when she's pregnant, she's got all these eggs and she doesn't eat for six months and she guards the eggs and then she dies when the eggs hatch. And he said, I feel really bad about eating, like I wasted all that calamari now because of that. And... Um, and I said to him, I was standing in his kitchen. I said, "Mate, this, this is this, this could go in the show. This, this conversation could go in the show." He goes, "Oh, okay." I don't think he believed it. But then he got the scripts in uh, in uh, season two, and he's like, "Oh, yeah, it's in there." And then we're sitting around, you know, doing it. And the interesting thing was the way I'd written it was, um, you know, Ray kind of, you know, Gary kind of says, "Well, that's it. I can't eat calamari," and that's how it was in the script. And then Nash said, "Hold on." Calamari squid, isn't it? <laughs> I went, yeah. Huh. And so that became the ending of that scene, you know, where, you know, Ray says, you know, calamari squid, isn't it? And Gary goes, oh. You know, he's like, oh, that's good. So that shows, you know, how it, you know, a lot of the conversations in the show um, are just from real life, you know, things that I've spoken about with other people. Um, I love the relationship between Ray and Gary. Uh, when you, beginning of season one, it's kind of the first thing that happens is Ray having to show up and pretend that this Golden Shower DVD is his. It's, it just sets such a wonderful tone for the, for the first season. I was wondering, when you were writing the scripts for the first season, how, how did you expand the world um, of the film, what, what were the elements you realised you needed to bring in to make this a, a deeper, broader place for that first season? Yeah, 
Well, I think the thing is, it's like uh, I knew we had to see. I mean, the film fo- focuses on his on his on his work life, and I and I knew we had to get his his personal life in there to make it work, um, so that you could actually see him outside of what he does. Um, so that was the first thing in thinking about, you know, what 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 kind of characters can I put in there? And I thought of, you know, he's got a daughter. I mean, I think he had a daughter. I think he, I think he had a daughter in The Magician. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure if it's ever mentioned. I think it might be. But, um, you know, so there was that and, you know, he's got an ex-wife and, you know, he's got a mate, best friend Gary. And, you know, I, I figured I had to come up with a couple of, uh, set of characters for his sort of his inner circle, you know. And what about uh, like how his his sort of his day job was that uh, with the Damon Harriman character that kind of gives an element of structure to the show. Um, did you always know he was going to be you know a, a bouncer at a strip club kind of thing? Yeah, uh, not not necessarily bouncer at a strip strip club, but he was he was supposed to be he was supposed to do odd jobs. Freddie. Um, and then it became, you know, well, why don't I just have him working there as well? Why don't I just have him doing security at the club? Uh, you know, that's his kind of, you know, his day job, I suppose. Um, and then, uh, you know, killing people in between, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, stuff, you know, it's just, it's a development process, you know, you have ideas and then other ideas come along and then you change things and, you know, uh, the daughter character is kind of the most grounding element of the show and, and the most humanizing element of, of Ray's story. Uh, it's It can be shocking the juxtaposition between the scenes between him and his daughter and then some of the awful things he does. Was was it just about showing how much of a good guy Ray was and, and that he had this kind of, you know, familial grounding element? Um, I'm not sure if it's so much about showing what a good guy he is because I'm not really that interested in, I'm not really that interested in in showing that he's a good guy or I don't really care whether people like him or not. Um, I'm just trying to sort of give like an honest, as, as honest as I can considering it's a TV show, an honest account as I can of a guy who does this job for a living, you know, and that's really all it's about. You know, he's got his, he's got his, uh, like anybody, his flaws. Um, you know, there's good things about him. There's bad things about him. Um, and that's really it. And it's up to the individual to decide, Hey, you know, I like him or I don't like him or sometimes I like him and sometimes I hate him or, you know, and that's okay to go through that. I think, you know, it's okay if sometimes you don't like him, you know, you're looking at him and you're like, no, nah, I don't know if I really like him anymore. And then the next thing you're like, oh, okay, yeah, kind of do. Yeah, I like him. And, you know, I like putting the audience in that position where they're like they're rooting for somebody that they definitely should not be rooting for, you know. And then they're kind of wondering, well, geez, what does this say about me if I like somebody like that? Yeah. Well, uh, I realised something um, while finishing up season two that the show really reminds me of uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm in a lot of ways and that Ray is, is saying and doing things that a lot of us would like to say and do 
in, in, in certain situations. Has that comparison been drawn before? Is that, is it, what do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, people, people, people have mentioned it, and it definitely is. I mean, look, this show to me in a lot of ways is, is, is curb your enthusiasm except Larry kills people for a living, you know. <laughs> That's really... Kind of, I mean, you look at you look at episode one. You know, it's kind of like this. You know, Ray throws a guy off a, you know, some stairs, and it's kind of you know sort of dark and brooding and uh, very black. And you know, then Gary comes up and says, "Mate, I, you know, I need a favour. I need you to come around to your house. What for? Uh, you know, my wife found one of my pornos, and I need you to come around. And that's something you'd see in Curb Your Enthusiasm. You know, that is that is something that's you know, who's the guy, Jeff? In Curb Your Enthusiasm, that's something you can imagine him saying to Larry, I need you to come around and take... You, you could put that in Curb Your Enthusiasm, you know, no problem. It's that kind of uh, silly thing that happens. And I've heard from people when they watch the show, you know, in that first episode, they're kind of trying to figure out what it is, you know, what 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 is this show? And then when Gary shows up and says, hey, you know, that's when they start to get what the show really is. Like, it's that juxtaposition between... Okay, he kills people and it's, you know, it's dramatic and it's scary and it's all that sort of stuff. But there's also this kind of silly, funny, humorous side to the show as well. Um, and it's those two things. It's, you know, it's it's Ray and his daughter and, the you know, there's some sort of tender moments there and, and then it's off back into the brutality, you know, um, because life is like that. Life doesn't have one tone. You know, life, you can be laughing at a funeral. You know, you can... You know, you can be laughing in some pretty horrible circumstances, and next minute, you know, you're uh, you're crying, and you know, life is tragic. It's all these, it's all these things. It's all these things, and that's what you know we're trying to do with the show is kind of make people feel different things, not just have this one time where it's like it's a drama and it's just serious and it's just because that that sort of stuff just bores me to tears. You know, I want to, and also just straight comedies. I don't like generally straight comedies; they bore me. You know, mm. I want to see a bit of this, I want to see a bit of that, um, just like in real life, you know. There is there is a, a definite sort of wish fulfillment element to it as well. I, I can perceive in that, as I mentioned, sort of he's, he's taking care of business in a way that a lot of us might like to, but don't have the balls to do so. Is there, are you, are you sort of expressing your own frustration with how much dickheads behave like dickheads in the world? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's it's definitely a part of it. You know, we'd all love to do some of the things Ray does. And that's, you know, we live vicariously. And it's why people watch shows like, you know, The Sopranos, you know, why that was so, so, you know, was watched by so many people and so well loved, you know, because there's that part of us that, you know, we're, we're uh, kind of programmed in society to behave a certain way, you know, that we've got to be good boys and good girls and we've got to do this and we've got to do that. Um, but it's why we love those characters that break out of that. You know, they're not, they're not, they're kind of breaking the programming. They're not afraid to be who they really are. You know, everybody's got a shadow self, you know, as uh, Carl Jung, you know, would say. We've all, we've all got that dark part of ourselves. And, you know, a lot of people, they walk around and they pretend that they don't and they ignore it and they, you know, lock it up deep inside of them and they never let it out, you know, because, you know, as a kid, if they did it, they'd get, you know, slapped or told off or humiliated. You know, we're programmed to be the people that we are. And 
I think there's something about, you know, the Ray Shoesmiths who just don't fear the consequences, you know. Um, you know, who would I be? If I didn't fear consequences, who would I be? I'd be a different person. I'd have, you know, I'd be in jail, basically. Um, and that goes for a lot of people, I think. There's, there's people that we want to... There's people that we want to hit with a baseball bat. You know, I've never met anybody where I've said, oh, you know, is there anybody? You ever wanted to smack somebody in the mouth? The answer is never no. You know, <laughs> we've all got somebody that's got under our skin and we wanted to just kick them in the head, you know. We didn't. Why? Because of consequences, you know. We were worried about what would happen, you know. Well, I know. So we not- seriously through him when he does it because it's us doing it to so-and-so, yeah. you know, or so you know we're, and we're getting that we're getting that that thrill from that i get very nervous every time ice cream is mentioned things always go badly around this character when someone's having an ice cream yeah yeah it doesn't go too well does it? did you write the entire first season before you shot it uh yeah look i i'd written it over a a long period of time and done so many drafts and polishes. Um, but, yeah, the scripts were pretty much ready to go uh, even before we got into pre-production, I think. They were sort of ready to go. Not so much with season two. I was still writing through pre-production. And when you were um, shooting those that first season, six episodes, did, did it play out how you'd kind of anticipated it would? Was there any kind of, um, did you have to shift anything or reframe anything based on how it how the shooting process went? Well, originally it was going to be eight episodes and then we sort of cut it down to six because we didn't have a whole lot of money. Um, we had very limited funds. But, you know... We, we, we kind of shot everything that we, we that was in there and, you know, in the edit, we kind of took stuff out. But, you know, originally this show was kind of devised. <clears throat> originally, um, my plan was to shoot it very much in the same way as uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, you know, heavily improvised. Uh, that was... I don't, even, I don't even think Curb Your Enthusiasm, because, see, The Magician was heavily improvised and Curb Your Enthusiasm wasn't even around at that point. Um, that was just something that I like to do. You know, I like to improvise. I don't mind having scripts there to work off, but I like to improv because I feel like you get more naturalistic performances um, from everybody. Um, but that was something, you know, Nash, Nash is very different in that way. He likes to stick to a, stick to a script. Um, most of the time. So we had to kind of, what's the word? Um, what's that word? Meet in the middle, compromise? Yeah, yeah, there, were, there, were, there was compromise. There was compromise in a couple of areas. Um, but I think, you know, I think, I think things have worked, have, have worked out pretty well considering, you know, I don't think that the show's worth, were worse off for the compromise. So it's worth making them in that case, you know. Yeah, I was interested to hear what degree of improvisation was there because it feels very loose. It feels very conversational. But you're saying it's pretty tightly scripted overall. Yeah, it it is. It's very tightly scripted. Um, You know, dialogue is something that, you know, it took me a good 10 years to actually figure out how to write dialogue. 
Um, and that's writing seven days a week for 10 years. Like it was, it was the hardest thing to get right. But once I figured it out, you know, it's like riding a bike, you know, um, you don't forget it. So, you know, I go to a lot of trouble to make sure that the dialogue is as realistic as possible. So it sounds like the way people actually talk rather than, you know, so, and that, and that helps, you know, it helps, helps everybody, helps the actors. Uh, I think if they get scripts where they're not having to say stuff that doesn't sound like the way people talk. I mean, I, I don't think I could do that kind of acting. I love that w- when Ray encounters people, something you, I realise you don't see in a lot of script TV, they, they go, hi, how's it going? He's like, oh, I'm good, thanks, how are you? It's so many shows skip over that, but it just brings such a, a naturalism to the interactions. I love that about it. Um, okay, so uh, season one, we locked off. It was a success. Um, I think now we'll play the trailer for season two and start talking about that. So if you can run that, VT, please. Tech team. Are you Ray Shoesmith? I don't answer questions. Can I help you? We're looking for a Ray Shoesmith. Does he live here? I don't answer questions. Okay, is there somebody here who can answer questions? I don't answer questions. Would you mind telling us why? I don't answer questions. Okay. See ya. I wasn't looking for trouble as a kid. I felt like I was weak. But I learned there's people in this world. They'll take and take till there's nothing left here. You gotta fight back, you know? It's always better to give than receive. Is it? Um, Brittany's dad. Have you ever killed anybody? Uh, once. I'm just kidding, mate. I'm just kidding. Nice eye. Nice place. There's a darkness in you, and I can't save you. I can only save myself. Is that the goal? I'm going to teach you about loss. Get to work, you about loss! Where's the kid? Nice, nice. Oh, no. I'm going to win still. No, you're not. Yes, I am. It, it definitely feels uh, like there's an escalation in the second season. What 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 did what what lessons did you take from shooting the first season into and, and what were your ambitions for expanding the show tonally and, and worldwide in season two? Well, I think the thing the main thing with season one was it was written probably mostly bef- sort of before about two thousand and ten, most of that material. So, you know, there was a fair few years in between, you know, where I, you know, matured. And, um, you know, season one was supposed to be kind of, you know, funny, exciting, interesting, entertaining. Um, But it was never really meant to be much more than that. Um, But with season two, I didn't just want to repeat. I didn't want to repeat myself as a writer and just go, well, that worked, so let's just do that again. 
Um, I wanted there to be more to it. I wanted there to, it to be more of a, a sort of character study, I guess, um, sort of flesh him out a little bit more. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where the, um, that's where sort of season two sort of came from. You mentioned that you were still writing it when you were shooting season two. You're the sole credited writer on every single episode. Is it is it a completely solo writing process? Are you, how, are you getting um, feedback from your producers? Uh, how, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, we had a we had a writers' room season two, um, you know, and FX and and and. Um, Nash and Michelle are involved in that as well as the process, as well as uh, Rita McVeigh, who's a New Zealander, uh, is is involved in that process as well of, you know, notes and structure. And um, so, yeah, I don't do, I mean, I do the writing on my own, but I, but there is definite help there um, from, from a bunch of people, you know, giving me feedback, you know, this sucks, that sucks, it's good, that's good, you know. Yeah. Is it, do you enjoy writing? No one does. I used to. <laughs> I used to enjoy it. Now, there are times when I enjoy it. Um, but on the whole... Yeah, it's not that enjoyable. It's not that enjoyable, I have to say. I mean, it just depends what you're writing. I mean, you know, if you, you're doing a first draft, it's kind of enjoyable. You're doing a second draft, it's like pulling teeth. Yeah, and the more drafts you do, the harder it gets. You know? Do you have a, uh, a process? Do you, like, get up and do it first thing in the morning or, or do, you, do you push things out, delay, procrastinate? How, how do you approach the actual physical act? Well, I think procrastination is a key. Um, that's, that's the first stage in the process is uh, is procrastinate as much as possible. Don't do it. Um, don't do it. And then, you know, look at your schedule and go, well, gee, I've got to do it. And then do it when you sort of absolutely positively have to. But, I mean, the thing that I do, I mean, I don't like to sit at a, I don't like to sit in front of a screen and think about what I'm going to do. So I'll go and, I'll think a lot about what I'm going to do before I even sit down to write. So when I when I'm sit down to write, I've pretty much got it thought out, and then it's just a matter of just there. Um, we talked about how there's this uh, great element of the character that he's he's doing things and taking care of business in a way that a lot of us would like to. There's a, a, a very intense episode in season two, episode nine, when um, a kid gets kidnapped and and Ray cracks into action in a way we sort of haven't seen him do before. It's a very dark episode, but it also shows that Ray and his friends can kind of solve the situation perhaps better than the cops might be able to. Um, what, was, what was your thinking around, around that episode? Um, well, I guess it's that, it's kind of what you're saying there. It's like, you know, if you obey the laws, you know, you obey the laws. And if, you know, if Gary and Ray had have obeyed the laws, they never would have got that kid back. So it's, uh, you know, the, the end justifies the means. I don't know if that's the correct term to use, but 
uh, you know, I know if I was in that situation, you know, I'd do whatever was necessary. You know, if I've got to go around to somebody's birthday party and put a put a put a hole in the roof with a shotgun, I, I'd have no problems doing that. You know, if it meant that, you know, I found, you know, that I that I, that I found that person, you know, and I think that's what that episode is saying. You know, it's like, uh, you know. It's not like Ray doesn't face consequences either. It's quite severe consequences in his in his life for the actions he yeah, takes he in that episode. Yeah, yeah, he does. He does face consequences, but at the end of the day, he got the job done. You know, and that's really that's really all that matters. You know, if you're going to try to save somebody from that, um, you know, what are you what are you prepared to do? You know, and um, thankfully, he was prepared to do whatever it took. Yeah, it's a very powerful episode and, and it feels like a um, kind of a distillation of, of the worldview of the show in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, without giving too much away, um, there are some long-standing elements of the show that are seemingly gone by the end of season two. Um, is is the idea to just kind of keep it fresh and, 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 and not not let let Ray's world sort of settle into too much of a routine was was that was that the thinking behind sort of getting rid of some of those characters um yeah i think i mean i think it's a matter of just trying to keep it i mean it's i don't know whether it's a matter of keeping it like i think i think you know characters come in and they kind of serve their purpose you know, they come in for a reason and then it's just when that when they've served their purpose, it's just time for them to go. And if you keep them around, it's not going to help. It's not going to help the show. You know, you, they've got to sort of move. They've got to move aside to allow, okay, other, other, other characters to come in that are going to take the show into, into other areas, you know. I mean, it's easy to sort of leave them there, you know, you kind of go, well, season one worked with these characters, let's just keep them around. Um, but I think that actually works against you because, I mean, the audience will, you know, if you're doing that, the audience is going to grow a little tired of it, you know. You know, you feel that, you watch shows and you're like, why well, is this character even still here? You know, they've served their purposes, they've said what they've had to say. Now it's just dead air. You're like, get rid of them, you know. And so, you know, uh, it's just it's just part of trying to you know part of trying to keep it fresh and keep you know surprising the audience you know having you know characters just sort of disappear um, uh, so that the audience never gets entirely comfortable you know they're not like oh well this is you know this character is going to be around for every season of the show you know I can relax you know um, it's not it's not the case. And it's, you know, part of the part of the thing as a as a writer is you gotta you're trying to, and this is where I have a problem with you know the way things are these days. You know, with the, the way people teach writing, um, they're teaching people about um, you know structure that there's got to be all these formulas for you know when you're writing you've got to do this and you've got to do that. You've got to have a plot point. And you've got to have blah blah over here and blah blah over there. 
the problem with that and writing that way is that you end up not surprising your audience. Your audience, you know, either consciously or subconsciously gets to know the formula, you know. They become aware of what the formula is. Um, and then so they, when they're watching something, they know what's going to happen next. And I find that all the time, you know, when I'm watching stuff, I'm like, well, I know what's going to happen at the end of this episode or I know what's going to happen in this scene um, because everything now is so formulaic. Well, not everything, but most things are formulaic, I think. Um, and people don't sort of seem to write from their gut. They seem to write from... Um, you know, this accepted formula of this is this is how, this is, if you're going to do a TV show, this is what you've got to do and this is how you got to do it. And I've always been very anti that. You did such a good job with those characters, though I missed them. Well, that's the whole point. You're supposed to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not supposed to go, oh, jeez, I'm glad. Oh, God, I'm glad that guy died. Or, you know. <laughs> I mean, sometimes, sure, you know, you want the bad guys in the show to die. I mean, that's part of it. But you also should miss the, you know, because it, the, if, if you don't miss these characters, I haven't done my job. Yeah. You know, I've, you know you, you're supposed to. You're supposed to be sad. You're supposed to miss them. You're supposed to think about them, you know, and that's, and that's the whole point. That's the whole point, but, you know. Yeah. The show, yeah. You know? yeah. That's life. The, the show know? is more powerful for it because, as I said, you, you, you get these consequences and raise life for the decisions he makes and, and they're... And, and a lot of shows kind of circle around those. Um, so I, I love that about it. Um, just before we go into the audience Q&A, um, what can you tell me about season three? I'm very excited. Nothing. <laughs> so there'll be yeah, new characters coming in to replace those ones that are gone? or? Well, no, basically season three is um, in episode one, Ray gets, somebody puts Ray in a coma. We don't see who it is. And for the whole season, Ray's in a coma. So basically, <laughs> it's hospital bed, Ray coma, and in the final episode, in the last scene, Ray sort of slowly starts to open his eyes and come out of the coma. Um, I'll go where I'll go down whatever path you want to take us down, Scott. Um, you've, you've earned that <laughs> at this point. Um, okay, I've got some some audience questions here. Um, as a writer, how did you approach restructuring the story from feature to episodes? And what challenges did you face in keeping it going for subsequent series? Restructure. Um, well, it was interesting. I mean, I'd, I'd never written for TV before. Um, so it wasn't so much about, it wasn't so much about restructure. I mean, basically what I'm, do, what I'm trying to do, if I can, is make mini movies. You know, I'm trying to make 25-minute movies. You know, where you've got a you've got the start, you've got the middle, you've got the end, you know, and then the music track at the end that, you know, sort of hopefully ties it all together. And that's basically what I was trying to do, basically. Um, you mentioned that uh, it took you 10 years to learn how to write authentic dialogue. What advice would you give writers when it comes to writing authentic dialogue? What did you learn over those 10 years? Um, the most important thing about writing dialogue is... You know, this is what I learned. Don't don't think about what you're going to write before you write it. Don't get it perfect in your head and go, well, what am I trying to say? Uh, okay, I'm going to say this and then, and then write it. Just write it. No filter, just write it. You know, there was a scene in episode, there was a scene in season two where Gary and Ray are talking about James Bond. 
right? Who's the best James Bond? Oh, yeah, Sean Connery. And then, uh, and then uh, who was that other guy? There's that other guy. Uh, uh, and it was Daniel Craig. But the thing is, when I wrote it, I couldn't remember his name. So I just kept writing. I didn't go and look it up and go, well, who is that guy? I just kept writing it so I didn't interrupt the flow of the dialogue. Um, and then at the end, I just left it because it was funnier to leave it without actually saying who it was. And Gary can't figure it out either. Eh? He's like, oh, yeah, you know that guy. He's number four. So, you know, the whole thing is, is you know, to get that, to get the dialogue, you know, authentic and flowing, you have to let it flow. You know, you have to, you know, and like when I'm writing dialogue, you know, I'll say, like I just said then, I said, you know, my characters will say, you know, as they're talking, you know. Because <laughs> that's how people talk. That's speech patterns. You know, in real life, people have speech patterns. Uh, the unfortunate thing is when, you, when you're watching a movie or a TV show, the speech patterns of the actors, the characters in these shows don't match the speech patterns of people in real life. And if you can match those patterns, that hooks the audience in because they go, well, geez, these are real people. These aren't characters in a movie. These aren't, you know, these aren't fake two-dimensional things. These are, these are like real people. There's, like I know a guy like that or I know a girl like that or I know that's like my uncle or my, you know. And that's the whole point of, of, of writing. Because if you look at my dialogue, it's, it's, it's like I'll be starting a sentence and then halfway through a sentence there's a comma and then I start another sentence and I go back to something I was, you know, because I'm just vomiting this stuff out as I'm writing it. I hope that answers your question. It's a great answer. There's some tangible advice in there. Um, did you at any point consider handing off the responsibility of writing the show to anyone else? Oh, absolutely. But you haven't done that yet. <laughs> I, won't, I won't do it. Is that because of a sense of ownership or...? Uh, I mean, you know, the way that I write is very... Uh, very different to the way most other people write. And, you know, it's that thing of like, you know, if I let somebody else do that, you know, what is the show going to be? Is this, is it, it's not going to be the same show. You know, it might be a good show or, you know, or whatever. I don't know, but it's not going to be the same show if I don't write it because the way that I write is just very different to the way a lot of people, most people write, I think, you know. Um, and it's, it would be about finding people. If I could find people that wrote the way that I wrote to keep the tone the same as it is, sure, I'd do it. But, you know, I don't personally know anybody that, that writes the way. So it's kind of hard for me to, to do that. You know? It does have a singular voice, this show. So please, please yeah. don't, don't do that. Yeah, it does. And it's, it's the same with if you go, you know, with other directors, you know, you lose kind of, you kind of lose something there too, you know, and it becomes a different kind of show. Was uh, writing season three easier, harder than writing season two? Oh, look, I'd say it's, it's hard to say. I mean, they're all hard. I mean, the problem with season three was, you know, I was kind of feeling like if I said everything I've wanted to say, you know, have I really got anything to say? Should I keep going and... Um, but, you know, because you, you, you've got that thing of, okay, season one, you know, it was, it was well received and season two was, you know, probably better received than season one and 
you kind of feel like you've got to go, you know, every time you've got to up the stakes. And um, I thought, well, you know, how am I going to top season two? You know, I don't think I can. You know, if I can do something as good or that I feel is as good, I'll be happy with that. Um, so there's that pressure, you know. There's that pressure of, you know, is it going to suck, basically, that you've got to carry that weight the whole time that you're riding it. Do you, do you take any uh, strength from how, how well the show is received? Does that give you more confidence as a rider? Yeah, but it actually, it's actually within that are the seeds uh, kind of, I don't know, for your own destruction. I mean, it's, you know, if you, if you make a TV show and then season one's like, oh, it's okay, then you don't feel that pressure to kind of, you know, I've got to do something really, really, you know, you can just be like, oh, okay, well, I can just do something okay and that'll get me over the line season over season, you know. But when you have something that, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't think an Australian TV show has ever been picked up by a, a, an American uh, sort of cable network or whatever and just premiered in the US first before it premiered anywhere else in the world. So... There's a lot of firsts for this show, and um, and it's been so well received. I mean, you read the you read the reviews and stuff, and they're pretty. They're, you know, especially season two, it's like you know, then you feel you've got to live up to that. You know what I mean? Whereas if they canned the show and said it was a pile of garbage, then you wouldn't feel that pressure to actually, you know, that you've got to you've got to meet these standards. So it actually is terrible. So hopefully. You know, I'll come out season three and go, well, this is a pile of crap, but, you know, let's see. <laughs> and that takes the pressure off then, you know. Um, just one more audience question here. As the creator, how do you ensure that you have editorial control of the show? Um, I generally carry a, a knife uh, <laughs> most of the time, um, you know, that I'm on set and especially in pre-production. Um and that generally, um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, it, it's it's one of those things of uh, it's just a respect thing, you know what I mean? I don't work with people who are, you know, going to ignore me or don't respect what I do, you know what I mean? And there's mutual respect there, you know what I mean? If I want to do this, I'll talk to Nash about it, you know, and if he wants to do that, he'll, you know, and it's always it's the best idea wins, you know, we, you know, it's like, you know, if he wants to cast this person um, and I don't like that person, then he's got to convince me as to why he wants that person. And the same, if I really feel strongly about somebody, I'll say, hey, look, this is why I think that guy should be playing this character. Um, and the same with ideas, you know. It's, um, I mean, I remember saying to him recently, a couple of months ago, my job, it's kind of like I'm a goalkeeper and I'm standing in the goal um, and basically people are firing their ideas at me, you know, especially when it comes to getting notes on the, on the, on the writing process, on the scripts. And my job is to let the right, the right balls in the goal and stop the wrong ones from getting in there, you know what I mean? Because everybody, as well-meaning as they are, everybody wants to make the show better, but sometimes they give you ideas that just patently suck. So, you know, my responsibility is there is to make sure they don't get in the back of the net while letting the good ones in, you know. 
And it's a, it's a tough, it's, it's tough because, you know, some people, they get their, they get their, you know, everybody's got an ego. Everybody thinks their ideas are great. Um, and maybe they are, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, as the writer or the creator, it's my decision, you know, in the, in the writing process to make sure that only the good stuff gets in there. Yeah. Um, our time is wrapping up now, but I, I've been wanting to ask you throughout this, have, have people come up to you and say and said that they know people like Ray or that like oh. is and accused you of basing it on someone they know or something? Oh, not necessarily that, but, you know, I mean, I was talking to the, you know, we were shooting last night in the armourer, uh, you know, the guy who's responsible for providing all the guns for the show. He's like, oh, God, I knew a guy like Ray. He was a Czechoslovakian dude and he was KGB trained and, you know, and he killed people for a living. So, yeah, I get I get it all the time. I get it all the time. Oh, I've got an uncle or I knew this guy or, you know, I think I think a lot of people out there know a Ray, you know, a family relative or a friend or a, you know, whatever, you know, there's, there's rays all over the place. Well, I'm a big fan of, of this ray. So uh, really great to talk to you, Scott. Thanks for giving us your time today. Um, the show is amazing. I hope it goes for, for many more seasons. And, and it's, it's, it's great that it's, um, it's got such a unique voice and is, is getting that nice, authentic Aussie vibe out there. So everyone, let's thank Scott for his time today. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Cheers. Thanks again. See you later. Thanks for coming, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, Mr. Inbetween is on Neon, I think. Only season two, though, which is messed up. Uh, check it out if you can. Thanks a lot. The Big Screen Symposium 2020 was brought to you by Script to Screen and J&A Productions. We gratefully thank our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, Te Mangai Paho, Images and Sound, Screen Auckland and AUT. Voiceover is by me, La Lena Faunati, and music by Poddington Bear. 